This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, coming to you from Daragland, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. Australia's chronic housing crisis has been decades in the making. As the scale of the shortage continues to grow, the states have stepped up. At last, a partnership on more housing for people who need it most. In Victoria, Premier Daniel Andrews promised to get on and build more houses by introducing a suite of reforms aimed at tackling supply. More housing supply means lower prices. It also means that you've got that stable, that absolute essential, a roof over your head to then build a life for yourself to reach your In New South Wales... This Labor budget signals the beginning of a new age of public investment that benefits the many. The new Labor government pledged to tackle the deeply flawed housing market with a modest package which they say is just the beginning. You cannot reverse a decade of neglect quickly. We're running the risk of evicting an entire generation from home ownership. And federally, Labor's landmark housing policy finally passed the Senate. After years of stagnation and prioritising profits over people, will these new measures make an impact? Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of Newsroom Mike Tisher about whether small steps can make a big difference to the housing crisis. It's Friday, the 22nd of September. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. At the moment, everyone is talking about the housing crisis. It seems like finally governments are starting to take it seriously. Lenore, what's going on? Well, I think you just said it finally. (laughs) Governments are starting to take it seriously. You know, this is something that Australians have been experiencing for a long time. It's been a huge issue. It takes a while for policy to catch up and policy is finally, finally starting to catch up as far as it goes. And I guess we're going to talk about whether it goes far enough. But, you know, just this week we've seen Victoria release a housing package, which is a good thing because they're the fastest growing state in the country with an amazing sort of deficit of houses over the next little while. And they released quite an ambitious package really by Australian standards. Housing was also supposed to be the centrepiece of the New South Wales budget. Ambitious there, not so much. And also a little while ago, the federal government's housing package that was held up in the Senate by the Greens, they negotiated a settlement and that has gone through. And those policies all work together 
and I think will start to address the problem. So, so far, so good. Mike, we can't go into all the nitty-gritty of these three announcements, but (laughs) (laughs) what are the highlights, do you think, of the Victorian housing statement? So there were numerous parts to the Victorian housing statement which promises to build 800,000 homes in Victoria over the next decade, which does sound like a lot. That sounds like something that would begin to address the crisis in a meaningful way. Except they need to build like nearly 60,000 just to keep up with demand and that wouldn't even make it better. So 60,000 a year. Yeah. But at least makes it's, it a little bit better. That's right. But one of the items that got a lot of publicity was this 7.5% tax on short-term lets, the sort of so-called Airbnb tax, although it also affects stays and other short-term lets. That is uh, sort of a thing that's been considered around the country by other states as well. That that is very much contested by stays and Airbnb, mm. and and by people who are, who who use Airbnb as to whether that will actually have a meaningful impact on the housing and by and investors, so, right? And if so, how? Yeah, like the AFR's single mother who was lamenting the impact of the Airbnb tax on her three investment properties. Yes, your heart goes out. Mm. But they will use the, the money to fund social and affordable housing, right? Some of it. Exactly. Yeah. So that's an income stream there for more social and, and community housing, yeah. They set new deadlines for dwelling approvals. Uh, they put in new reforms to protect tenants, again, contested as to how effective those will be. And also, really strikingly, they announced the repurposing, in quotes, of <laughs> 44 high-rise public housing towers in Melbourne uh, over time, obviously not all at once. That will be gradually demolished and uh, rebuilt with housing that is energy efficient, modern, good to live in, but also the previous tenants will be you know, entitled to move back in, but naturally that takes a while. And also to change the planning laws. I thought that was one of the most interesting bits of it, actually, the way that they were trying to get around um, objections from people who live in, you know, nice, not very dense suburbs to increase density in inner city areas and trying to override councils for bigger developments so that the a central party makes the decisions and not needing approvals for granny flats and stuff. I thought that was really quite innovative in what they were doing, yeah? And, Lenore, you mentioned the New South Wales budget, which came out this week, was hardly ambitious on housing, but what are their main promises? Um, So they had what they said was a $2.2 billion housing and infrastructure plan, but mostly what they're doing is building the services and the curbing and channelling and the roads and whatever that is needed in order for private developers to more quickly develop new housing. That's their real focus. There's, I think of the $2.2 billion, about $300 million is going to go to the government-owned developer, Landcom, to build an additional 1,500 affordable homes and then to help the private market build more than that. But the big focus in New South Wales is just getting things ready for the private private property developers to move in Most of their social housing is sort of interwound with the federal government's funding for social housing. And I guess 
a lot of the commentary has been around how little there was for social and affordable housing from New South Wales, that it sort of barely scratches the surface, especially when they're raking in like billions and billions of dollars of extra revenue Mm -hmm. from stamp duty because houses are so expensive. It just felt like they didn't really do much in that regard. Although the amount of money was really small, it was interesting how the Treasurer, Daniel Mookie, talked about Landcom, I thought, that he called it the jewel that wasn't privatised and said it was only the start of what they intended for Landcom. Mm -hmm. So I guess at least that kind of language is a bit new, that uh, the idea of investing in entirely state-owned development is not completely off the table, but at this stage the actual proposal is very extremely modest. And they have said that is just the beginning of what they're going to be doing. But, Lenore, you mentioned the federal funding. What were the main points of the Housing Australia Future Fund that was passed recently? So the federal government's got a couple of elements to what they're doing. The National Cabinet has said they want 1.2 million new homes to be built over five years. Now, I did actually try to unpick how much of what the states are announcing is a subset of that figure, and it's there's more work to be done there, at least on my part. But... If you look at that global figure for Australia, it means 240,000 houses a year, which is more than we've ever built before. So all of these these targets, the national target and certainly the Victorian state target, is really, really pushing this industry, pushing housing construction in a way that hasn't happened for decades and decades. And the federal government, to get that deal through, they've added sort of incentives for the states to actually take the what was 1 million new houses to 1.2 million new houses. Anyway, so they're all kind of aiming really high. And then what they got through was the $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund, which we've talked about before. That isn't $10 billion immediately going into affordable housing. It's the proceeds from that fund, so about $500 million a year, which will actually help build social and affordable housing. And the federal government also expanded eligibility for the home guarantee, so helping people get into the market with a smaller deposit. And they lifted rent assistance, you remember, in the budget. And they're trying with the states, and I think this is going to be a really interesting evolving thing, to incentivise build to rent. So that problem that we've talked about before and that's really been the case in Australia, which is as more and more people are really going to be renting for their lifetimes, that, you know, they're not going to be able to afford to own a home, having long-term patient capital, like from superannuation funds, invest in build-to-rent housing so that people can rent a house, you know, for a long time while their kids go to school, while they live in an area where they can't get evicted, where, you know, the house can't be sold from under them, where they know they've got that certainty, I think actually is a big piece of the puzzle as well. So there's sort of federal government initiatives that are fitting in with the state government initiatives and hopefully starting to solve the problem. That was an interesting bit of what of what Mookie said as well about we run the risk of evicting an entire generation from home ownership, which is a fundamental break to our national character. Mm. I mean, I don't think it's about character. <laughs> it's about policy um, and what the history of Australian housing policy, like we did rent for many decades, especially in the two decades after the Second World War. And then due to policy changes, we became a nation of homeowners. Now, as Lenore just said, we're increasingly looking at people who may not be able to own a home over their lives. So it's probably a good idea if we stop thinking about it in terms of national character and more in terms of providing either, whether it's rental or ownership, or just making housing affordable, you know. 
So overall, it seems like there are some ambitious policies. What might get in the way? A lot of things, uh, some very immediate things like uh, construction costs, building materials are in short supply right now. But if you then add however many hundreds of thousands of new houses into the pipeline, that's only going to get worse. Labor shortages, building a house is incredibly labor intensive and we just don't have enough of the trades. And again, that pushes the price up Mm. at the AFR Properties Summit the other week. There was a lot of talk about um, migration to solve that problem. And I think WA has a special visa class for construction workers, but then you know, they also also have to live somewhere. So anyway, and, you know, obviously there's questions about pay and conditions as well. You know, the Property Summit had the famous comments now by the property developer, Tim Gurner, who, you know, just said tradies aren't working hard enough and what we need is lots of unemployment, you know, to make them work harder for, for lower wages. So, you know, I think those two things are the biggest immediate challenges which an unprecedented or certainly for decades unprecedented building boom are only going to make worse. Well, more broadly, I think the problem is there are a lot of incentives in the system for a lot of different people to keep property prices high. Mm. And if you dramatically increase the supply of housing, that obviously has the potential to counteract the ever-increasing value of property. So among the people are developers, obviously, they, they like to sell houses for a, a good return. There are private investors, some of many of whom have been incentivized by the tax system, by negative gearing, to invest in multiple properties. And there are also state governments who rely on revenue from, particularly in New South Wales, their relatively benign budget position was boosted by, by revenue from stamp duty and land tax that um, depends on the house prices continuing or property, property values continuing to rise. So there are things working against the wholesale building of a lot of houses to uh, help people at the bottom of the ladder or even in the middle of the ladder mm. that may seem desirable and, you know, uh, the, all these policies are apparently intended to do, but um, there are other people in the system who have a, have a vested interest in not doing that, if you like. And in terms of property developers, I thought it was interesting that n- neither of the state governments really said much about how they might combat the idea of land banking, which I think Mike mentioned a bit before, referred to before, where, you know, property developers delay the release of new developments in order to keep the price high. Now, there's different views about to what extent that is a problem, but you'd have to think that if property developers, you know, have large tracts of land, that certainly would serve their interest to do that. And I don't really see anything that is going to stop them in what's being proposed so far. I mean, yes, it's their business to maximise profits, but the governments, plural, are doing a lot of things to help property developers at the moment meet this demand. So you feel like there should be some sort of quid pro quo? Mm. This was a crisis that was decades in the making. Is it realistic to think it can be solved quickly or is the solution going to play out over decades too? Yeah, the one even when we faced a housing crisis, you know, after the Second World War. It did take decades. Mm. But the one thing that we don't see out of any of this is governments borrowing money to build their own houses and to own their own houses. And sort of ideologically, since the 1970s, has become a complete no-no. There are arguments which obviously the government is sort of implicitly addressing by investing in the Housing Australia Future Fund to get a return from the share market to fund housing rather than borrowing money directly to fund its own housing. But 
it would be nice to hear the arguments against that, I think, a bit more explicitly, mm. why the, either state or federal governments cannot invest in building and owning and renting or even selling their own property um, because property development, as we've seen, is quite can be quite lucrative and it can be lucrative for governments as well as for private developers if they were prepared to invest in it over a period of time. Well, I think probably the solution will play out over decades and as Mike said, there's a bit of a push-me-pull-you thing going on at the moment. In particular, the thing we've talked about for a long, long time, which is the incentives for uh, private investors, you know, in particular, the combination of negative gearing and capital gains tax that really incentivises people to invest in housing as an investment rather than a place to live. And nobody seems to be addressing that. So that's always going to be sort of dragging back this push. But I think at least governments are, are turning their minds to it. Next, outrageous names and climate U-turns. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here. At Guardian Australia, we want to make sure you're getting the news that matters in 2023. Our morning mail and afternoon update newsletters are short and capture the most important headlines of the day. If that sounds good, you can subscribe for free right now by visiting the Guardian homepage, searching Guardian Australia newsletters, or just downloading our app and you'll get daily notifications. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Um, With all that in our head, I hope it's something light, Lenore. What is it for you? It is. It's the ABC journalist Kirsten Drysdale, who is on the ABC show What the FAQ, where people sort of send in wild and wacky questions. And some people seem to have asked, you know, is there any limits on what you can call your baby? And to put that to the test, she submitted her newborn son's name to the New South Wales births, deaths and marriages area as methamphetamines rules. <laughs> and was astonished and I imagine possibly a little bit horrified to find that it wasn't rejected as she expected but rather accepted and she found herself with a newborn baby named Methamphetamine Rules, which became a global story cue hyperventilating outrage from TV hosts who seemed to think that she was going to have her son remain named Methamphetamine Rules for the duration of his life, but she's obviously going to rename him having now 
proved a point she didn't want to prove. I hope he doesn't hold it against her. I don't think so, although I think husbands said they might nickname him Stevie. <laughs> she was asked on the BBC when they were going to tell him. <laughs> what did she say? Well, she said, you know, maybe as a sudden reveal at his 21st birthday party <laughs> or something. That'd but, be a really cool reveal at 21st. But uh, as the interviewer pointed out, probably he will have learnt to use the internet before then. <laughs> yeah. Possibly. Mike, what is it for you this week? Mine is much less cheerful, but I just had to find somewhere to vent my outrage about Rishi Sunak and his change of policy on numerous environmental issues, um, particularly pushing back the date uh, by which uh, new vehicles in the UK could not be sold in the UK from 2030 to 2035, among several other environmental policies like replacing gas boilers and so on, weakening them generally and what he sees as an electorally advantageous move based, it seems, on one by-election where Conservatives did better than they'd expected because they opposed, uh, you know, low emission zones, as they call it in the UK, um, and he has sort of latched onto this in desperation as a way to revive the Tories' fortunes and it just was like the most craven, short-term, pathetic political response I've seen in a long time and really dispiriting in terms yeah, of, yeah. you know, we've seen, we've, we've sort of talked about the bipartisanship in the UK over green issues as a model in some respects for Australia, uh, despite their otherwise quite, quite terrible government. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this just seems to kind of put an end to all that and just really, you know, how can self-interest you, trumps all. How can you go to a, the next COP or whatever other environmental conferences there and ask other people to go harder on what is the, the galloping climate crisis when you've just done something like that? It's just mind-boggling. But sorry to be, be a downer at the end of the show. I don't have a cute story. It certainly is depressing. Um, we'll think of something more cheery for next week. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lenore. Thanks, Gabs. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Joe Koning, who also wrote the theme music. The executive producer is me, Gabrielle Jackson. Have a wonderful weekend. Full Story will be back with you on Monday, and we'll see you then. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research by EY has revealed... The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centred higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.